Friends, would you turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 26? 1 Samuel 26, we're going to read the bulk of this chapter. And if you've been paying attention, this chapter is going to sound very similar to a chapter we read two weeks ago, 1 Samuel 24. I want you to listen for those parallels. We're going to talk about some of them. I'm in 1 Samuel 26, beginning in verse 1. Hear now God's word. Then the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding himself on the hill of Hakilah, which is on the east side of Jeshimon? So Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph with 3,000 chosen men of Israel to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul encamped on the hill of Hakilah, which is beside the road on the east side of Jeshimon. But David remained in the wilderness. When he saw that Saul had come after him into the wilderness, David sent out spies and learned that Saul had come. Then David rose and came to the place where Saul had encamped. And David saw the place where Saul lay with Abner, the son of Ner, the commander of his army. Saul was lying within the encampment while the army was encamped around him. Then David said to Ahimelech the Hittite and to Joab's brother Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, who will go down with me into the camp to Saul? And Abishai said, I will go down with you. So David and Abishai went to the army by night, and there lay Saul sleeping within the encampment with his spear stuck in the ground at his head, and Abner and the army lay around him. Then said Abishai to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now please let me strike him and pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear, and I will not strike him twice. But David said to Abishai, do not destroy him. For who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And David said, As the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed, but take now the spear that is at his head and the jar of water and let us go. So David took the spear and the jar of water from Saul's head and they went away. No man saw it or knew it, nor did any wake, for they were all asleep, because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. Then David went over to the other side and stood far off on the top of a hill, with a great space between them. And David called to the army and to Abner, the son of Ner, saying, Will you not answer, Abner? Then Abner answered, Who are you who calls the king? And David said to Abner, Are you not a man? Who is like you in Israel? Why then have you not kept watch over your lord, the king? For one of the people came in to destroy the king, your Lord. This thing you have done is not good. As the Lord lives, you deserve to die, because you have not kept watch over your Lord, the Lord's anointed. And now see where the king's spear is and the jar of water that was at his head. Saul recognizes David. David confronts Saul, and we pick up in verse 21. Then Saul said, I have sinned. Return, my son, David, for I will no more do you harm, because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Behold, I have acted foolishly, and I have made a great mistake. And David answered and said, Here is the spear, O king. Let one of the young men come over and take it. The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord gave you into my hand today, and I would not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, So may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord, and may he deliver me out of all tribulation. And Saul said to David, Blessed be you, my son David. You will do many things and will succeed in them. So David went on his way, and Saul returned to his place. Let's pray together. Father, would you open our eyes to 
a bigger vision of who you are? And would you allow that vision of who you are to shape us and how we live our lives? You can do that by the power of your Holy Spirit. And so we ask boldly in Jesus' name, amen. Well, the scene that we just read in chapter 26 is deja vu from chapter 24. We saw many of these things just two weeks ago. David is hiding out in the wilderness again. The Ziphites, they tattle on David again. Saul, again, he grabs 3,000 of his chosen men and he pursues David. And Saul, again, he unwittingly camps within striking distance of David and again makes himself vulnerable to David. David, again, he has a chance to kill Saul. Again, he relents from that chance to kill him. And again, he needs to argue with one of his men not to harm Saul. After this is all done, David again reveals himself to Saul. And Saul again apologizes for what he's done. And again, both of these men go on their own ways. The similarities are so bold between these chapters, I was tempted to grab my sermon from two weeks ago and dust the thing off and change the illustrations and give it another go. And you wouldn't have been the wiser, except chapter 26 is going to press this theme we've already seen even further. It brings out this theme again that we've said, and that is, if God is my deliverer, I don't have to be. We've seen that in 24, we've seen that in 25. 26 reaches the same conclusion in verse 24. May the Lord deliver me out of all tribulation. But this time we hear it with a twist. Because this time we have two men, Abishai and David, who both ascribe to that same bit of theology that God is my deliverer, but they both define it in very different ways. We're going to watch these two men wrestle with defining what we mean by God is my deliverer. And so in essence, we get these two living theologies before our eyes. We get to compare and contrast two ways to understand who God is and how we live in light of that. Now, I'm going to be honest from the very beginning. uh, The front part of this sermon is a dense theological thought. It's very intense, but the back end is very clear in its application. And so the sermon is going to read like a mullet. Business in the front, party in the back. But by God's grace, we're going to walk through it together and we're going to discern this. I I want to contrast these two men. I want to contrast Abishai and David and understand what they're saying. Abishai is theologizing from the ground and David is theologizing from above. And this is what I mean by that. Abishai starts from below. He begins with his circumstances, where he stands, what's in front of him, and from there he extrapolates who God must be and what he must have him do. David is doing something very different. He's beginning from above, what he knows about the nature and the character and the person of God, and from there he puts himself into these events and seeks to understand what God would have him do. Abishai, he starts from the ground and things look very clear. David is supposed to be the king of Israel. One person stands between him and the throne and that is Saul. And what needs to happen is we kill Saul and then David gets the throne. And by the way, that's what God ultimately wanted anyway, David to be on the throne. There we have it. We've begun from the ground and we've gotten to where we need to be. David, he's not gonna go down that road. He's going to begin with God and what he knows about God. That God is sovereign, 
that God will always stay true to his word, that God does not sin and does not tempt us to sin. And because he's beginning from above, it leads him in a very different direction than Abishai. I want us to watch these two men very closely and just watch them on these paths. We get the scene in chapter 26, it's very clear to us. We get a lot of details about Saul coming out. He's chosen 3,000 men again. He's gone into the wilderness and he's set up a camp and we get the details about this camp. He's at the very center of the camp and Abner, his commander, is next to him and 3,000 of his best troops are lying around him in a circle and as he's there, David hears about it, he sends spies, he comes himself and he sees that that Saul and his men are sleeping. And so he asks for a volunteer between these two men and Abishai volunteers. And so they sneak into the camp. They pick their way past these 3,000 men and they get to the center and here lies Saul sleeping and he has his royal spear stuck in the ground by his head and his water jar. And this is deja vu. This is too good to be true. This is another opportunity to take the life of Saul. And it's very clear to Abishai what should be done right now. He tells us in verse eight, he's whispering to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now, please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear and I will not strike him twice. Abishai knows exactly what to do in this moment. Now, it helps to remember just a little bit about who Abishai is and how we got to this point. Abishai, he's one of David's nephews. He's the son of, of David's sister. He and his two brothers will have very decorated military careers in David's army. Abishai is a doer. He's a mover. He's a shaker. He gets things done. He puts doorways where there was drywall. This is fascinating about Abishai. Abishai gets four speaking lines in the Bible. In three of them, he is asking David if he can kill somebody. <laughs> that, that captures Abishai in a nutshell. Abishai figures that if there is any sovereignty at all in God, if there's any sense in which God orders the way that the world is going to work, the way it's going to happen is at the business end of his spear, right? This is the way God is going to ordain and bring events to pass. Now you have to kind of wonder if David was leaning in this direction with Abishai. After all, David, he asks for two volunteers between these two men, but he takes Abishai with him into this camp and stands over Saul. And you've got to wonder, was David also leaning in this interpretation? Was he thinking this is probably what we should do? Or was he just bringing Abishai so that he could confront him and tell him a different way? But either way, this bulldozer of a personality, Abishai, he begins at the bottom and he works his way up. Let's ask for forgiveness and not permission. Let's take what's right in front of us and then we can determine if that gets us where God wanted us to be anyway. That is a very different way of thinking, a very different way of theologizing than what David is experiencing. He comes into the same camp, he sees those same events, those same circumstances, but he interprets them from a very different direction. He theologizes from above. David begins with what he knows about God and he lets that in turn inform what he should do. Here's what David knows about God from this chapter alone. 
Number one, he knows that God is sovereign. David knows that God stands in control over all things. That's going to be abundantly clear. But David is going to write later in Psalm 9, verse 7, the Lord sits enthroned forever. He's king over the cosmos. It's a very small thing for God to determine and to do. He can do anything. But number two, he knows that this same God has promised that he will be king. And more importantly, he knows that God always makes good on his word. If God says something, God cannot lie. There is no untruth in him. And if he says it, it will come to pass. David's going to write later in Psalm 1830, this God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. And number three, David knows that God cannot sin that he hates sin, and that he will not tempt David to sin. And he knows that if he were to take advantage of this opportunity and put a spear in Saul, like Abishai is suggesting, that it would be murder. It would be a sin against God, as he says in verses 9 and 23. So starting with who God is, David is then able to work his way out and determine how he should respond accordingly. His response is to trust in God as his deliverer. His response is to not grasp and grab for something that God is going to give him as a gift. You see the difference between these two men and how they're thinking about this? I think it's very important to put a caveat here because when we talk about God is my deliverer so I don't have to be, that that opens itself to misinterpretation of what we mean. When we say God is my deliverer so I don't have to be, we are not saying God is active so I can be passive. See the difference between those two? This is actually David in not taking an opportunity to strike Saul is being called to an active obedience and active trust of God. By not taking this opportunity, David now has to turn and for the next several years, he has to run in the face of danger. He must actively trust in God as his deliverer. Acknowledging God as my deliverer is not a shoulder shrug of passivity. It is a posture of radical faith and trust in him. There's going to be times when when God is going to call David to trust like in this passage. That means staying his hand from revenge and from, from hurting or harming Saul. And there's going to be other times when active trust in God as his deliverer is going to call him to be courageous in battle. Both of those are very active in knowing that God is my deliverer. Well, that all sounds so clear. We take these two men, we take theologizing from above and from below, and I think we can discern between those two what is right and what is wrong. I think if we left here and took a pop quiz, should we start with God and extrapolate who we are, or should we start with our stuff and then figure out what God is from there? I think all of us would say, you know, we should begin with God. David's right in this circumstance, we should do that. That's all so clear. What becomes really, really muddy in this passage is teasing out the theological future from this. I get the starting point, I get where we're supposed to begin, and I get how we're supposed to work our way forward, but what becomes very unclear is the future. David, he has this robust theology, but his future is a mystery. Look at this. He begins with a vision of God and that God is sovereign and he will deliver. And so 
in the camp, standing over Saul's body with Abishai, who's chomping at the bit to do something. David says to him in verse 10, look at this. As the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. Now, hang on a second. You tease that out a little bit, and you understand what David is saying there. He's saying to Abishai, who wants to jump in and do something, no, 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 no. I trust in the absolute sovereign power of God. He is going to act. He is going to deal with Saul, and he's going to do that by striking him dead, or Saul is going to die in battle, or there's a possibility that Saul might die of old age, or there's a scenario in which Saul could die of medical complications, or Saul might fall off of something and die, or something might fall on him and die. Um, It's not very clear how this is going to happen, but I'm pretty sure he's going to die. I just don't know how. What are we talking about? Abishai is sitting here saying, David, we need to focus here, man. Take the spear, put it in Saul, kill him, you get the crown. What am I missing here? What's going wrong? Abishai is starting from the ground and he's got a direct line to the crown. This is what we do and this is how we get there. David, he's starting from above and with God and it leads him into an absolute mystery. I don't actually know what's beyond this step of trusting in God in this moment. I don't know what God is going to do or how he's going to do it. I just know he's going to act. And it feels like this absolute radical faith that takes any kind of contingency, any kind of event that could possibly happen as if it comes from God. That kind of thinking used to drive me crazy about Christians before I became one. That a Christian could pray and then say that any answer that happened in their life was an answer that came from God. You know what I'm talking about. A Christian would pray for traveling mercies, get me from point A to point B, and they do get from point A to point B, praise God, he brought me to my destination. The same Christian would pray for traveling mercies, point A to point B, but they would get a flat tire and they wouldn't make it to point B and they would say, praise God, he brought me this flat tire so that he could teach me patience. And I would just rack my brain to say, that doesn't make any sense at all. You're taking any answer as your answer to your prayer, and it sounds so two-dimensional and trite. But if you think about it, that's a very profound way to theologize from the top down. That's a very profound way to think about God at the center and anything that happens is in relation to him and not to me at the center. There was a brilliant novelist, David Foster Wallace, who himself, he was not a Christian, but he gave a very famous uh, commencement address at Kenyon College, Liberal University in 2005. And he told this liberal audience what sounds like a bad joke. He said, you've got an atheist and a religious person and they walk into a bar in Alaska and they're sitting there debating the existence of God. And by the time they get to their third beer, the atheist, he's totally fed up and he says, look, uh, it's not like I haven't tried believing in God and tried prayer, it just doesn't work. I've tried it and it doesn't at all work. There's no God that's there on the receiving end of my prayers. I'll give you an example, the atheist says. Just last month, I was caught in the worst blizzard I've ever experienced in my entire life. I was in the woods and the snow was coming. I couldn't see my hand in front of my face. Temperatures dropped to 50 degrees below zero and I was sure I was going to die and I cried out to God to save me. 
well, the religious guy is sitting there and he says, well, surely you're here now a month later. You must believe in God. Something happened. And the atheist said, no, man, that had nothing to do with God. A bunch of Eskimos just happened to walk by and they grabbed me and brought me back to camp. And that's why I'm okay. Wallace is making the point, which is interesting, coming from a non-believer, exactly the point that we're making today. Although instead of talking about theologizing from below, he talks about theologizing from within. When we put ourselves at the center, we can't help but interpret every event in relation to ourselves and to our presuppositions. But if we will put God at the center, if we will understand that he is the one who is sovereign, we will begin to interpret every event around him. If we complain that believing God's total control is implausible because any contingency is possible is to argue from the bottom up. It's to begin with my notion of what's fair and what's just and what's right and what's true and trying to discern who God is based on that. It's conjuring God in my image. But God is not a PowerPoint screen. We don't get to dig deep in our own hearts and determine what we think is right and project that onto him. He stands completely and totally outside of ourselves. Now, here's where the rubber meets the road for us as we think about these things. Here's how we begin to apply this idea of theologizing from above. When we begin from the top down, when we begin with God at the center, that can be a little bit scary. Because every question that is most important to us gets snapped to attention under this sovereign God. What will happen to me? Will I be safe? Will I succeed? Will I be married? Will I have kids? Will my kids' conversions look like my own? Will I be healed? Will I be free? Will I be found out? Will I be loved? Every I, me, my question, it surrenders itself to a God who is writing our story and maybe in ways that we didn't think about our own story to begin with. I suspect that if you had pulled David aside in this scene and said, David, I know this is a beautiful act of faith. You're trusting that God is going to deliver you, but I want to describe to you what the next 10 years are going to look like. That would have been terrifying for David. You would have pulled him aside and said, David, I know God's going to make you king, but that's not going to happen at least for another 10 years. And in the process, things are going to get a lot worse before they get better. You're going to experience a coup from your men. They're almost going to kill you. One of your best friends in the world, Jonathan, he's going to die in battle, and you are going to be responsible for a civil war. You tell David that on the front end, and he's checking out of this theologizing from above. He doesn't want to begin with that. He might go down the road of Abishai. This is scary to venture out into a trust in this kind of God at the center But that gives way to some of the best news in the world. If we will venture in faith to understand that there is a God outside of us who stands in the center, we prepare ourselves for the good news of the gospel. That the more we learn about this God who stands enthroned above forever, the more we understand that he is a God who loves us, who holds us, who protects us, and yes, a God who will deliver us. Listen to Paul describe him in Galatians chapter 1. 
Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Understanding this God at the center, it doesn't make us safe, but it makes us free to know him. To know that this God of the center is the God of Galatians, God the Father who sends his son Jesus to deliver us, that will make us free. Free from the tyranny of fear and worry. It will make us free from the desire of hate and revenge. It will make us free from a life of chasing and grasping for what God will give us. We get to say with David in verse 24, May my life be precious in the sight of the Lord, and may he deliver me out of all tribulation. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you will make us a people who will venture out in faith, instead of anxious grabbing and grasping for what is our due and what is our right and what is our agenda, we would trust that you are the God who stands sovereignly in control of all of these things. And I pray that as we step out in faith, we would see that you are the God of Galatians, the God who loves us, the God who pursues us, the God who holds us and will deliver us, even when that deliverance looks different than the one that we thought we would get. I pray that we would trust you in this, in Jesus' name, amen.